Gumbo listeners, we are back with episode number 127. I'm your host, Demetrius Malbro, and today I have Michael Haas, CEO of Plant Jammer. And Michael is trained in econometrics and mathematical economics from London School of Economics. He's a former McKinsey consultant and Merrill Lynch investment banker who in 2016 founded his own startup, Plant Jammer. And this was to fight food waste and empower plant-based cooking. In this episode, we will discuss the creation and evolution of Plant Jammer, details about the cloud architecture, the use of artificial intelligence and gastronomic algorithms, including how to gather actionable insights about your diet and nutrition. So let's get right into this episode. Welcome to Data Protection Gumbo, Michael. How are you today? I'm all good. Thanks, Demetrius. Happy to be here. Likewise, and I am very excited to have you on because this is the the first time that I have had uh, this type of interview, but this is something that's near and dear to my heart, literally will help my heart and my cholesterol and blood pressure and all of those good things. So hoping that you can just maybe start with your company. How did you start it? Where did the name come from? Just kind of give us a, a brief overview really quickly. Yeah, I'd absolutely love to. So, um, so yeah, as mentioned, I'm Michael. I'm CEO and founder of, of Plant Jammer. We've been going on for five and a half years. Um, and Plant Jammer um, is called Plant Jammer. It's two, two words, right? So Plant is because we're focusing on plants and it's for cooking so it's the plant-based diet we want to nudge people in towards and jammer is because we want the attitude in the kitchen to not be one of uh, perfectionism but rather one of jamming just like you have in jazz where you have some core notes that you need to know and then you can jam we're providing those core sort of rules and when you have those rules uh, under your vest you can jam in the kitchen uh, and what we do is we help people cook. So we help people make it easy and fun to eat more plant-based, fight food waste by cooking with what you have in front of you and what's in season and what is locally. Uh, and as you do so, you obviously will be eating local seasonal stuff, which means health. Uh, so it's both a sustainability uh, play, uh, but it's also one that helps you not only get nice and delicious meals, but also, yeah, do something that's good for the planet. Awesome. Well, I, I do indeed love that. And so take me back to before you started the company. And so what, what really inspired you? Uh, what Was it something health-wise? I don't expect you to share all of that, but like you were sitting around one day and looking for a recipe or something. And just share that story with us, if you don't mind. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so I'm, I'm highly driven by sustainability. I have a background where I used to work with, uh, with McKinsey as a consultant, working with the energy sector. I also was working in Merrill Lynch as an investment banker, trading corn, soy, wheat, oil, gas, these commodities. Um, and both in McKinsey and Merrill Lynch, what I was doing was analyzing markets, really understanding supply and demand of these core commodities globally. And, and one thing that occurred to me after working quite a lot with the energy sector was that there's this beautiful space in food where it's actually within our individual realm of control to make a difference. Meaning in energy, you need you know, regulators or, or a big infrastructure projects and capital to make change. But in food, it's you and your habits. It's you and your home that can do tremendous change just by individual small changes in your, in your daily life. 
And I found that intriguing. Uh, and, and, and that's why I moved into food and, and cooking. So I realized, okay, I want to eat more plant-based. I want to eat more based on the, the ingredients that are available locally uh, and in my fridge so I don't have food waste. But I didn't really appreciate just following a recipe. So I thought, can we do something smarter that truly empowers people to think beyond a recipe and really learn how to cook uh, on the whim, <laughs> jamming, right? And, uh, and that's why we went into a technology solution that focuses on AI and food pairing, looking at all the amazing learnings we have on, on recipes online to create patterns that you can then use in your own sort of cooking uh, repertoire in your, in your own kitchen. So all about sustainability and empowering people to just make the small changes on a daily basis that actually has a huge impact. I, I agree with that as well. Sustainability is a, a huge one. And um, so it, it is plant-based, but it, it's not just for vegetarians and vegans. Is that correct? Correct. Uh, we, we nudge towards plant-based, which means we always give you a vegan option. And for any dish, you can always substitute in so you get vegan options. And we're also nudging the algorithm towards plant-based. But if you want to figure out what to do with chicken, you can also do that. Uh, so so we, we have the flexibility because we, we believe that, and I believe, that, that if we want to change people's habits, we have to start from where they are. And uh, if we're only focusing on making it you know, more delicious to be vegan for vegans, then we will not change anyone. Right? Uh, but if we're actually starting from where people are and then helping them make the small changes, then it's more powerful. So that's why we are not just uh, a vegan uh, solution. Awesome. I, I also love that as well. Now let, let's shift a little bit and maybe talk about some of the technology behind the scenes. So this is all SaaS, software as a service based. Uh, you, you have an app as well. And let's let's talk a little bit about the technology. And I'm sure you're you're running in in Amazon or AWS. And w w were you affected by by the uh, the outage at all that happened? Uh, we were not actually. We we were we're happy on this one. We we are in AWS. Uh, but uh, but we were we we dodged the bullet on that one. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, we we have uh, our our B2C offering, which are is our app called Plant Jammer. Uh, but then we also packaged all the technology behind that experience into an API. So a GraphQL-based API um, that you know gives you all the micro actions you need to build uh, a, a, a tremendously different recipe experience where you can nudge all, all recipes to personalization. Uh, and then we even build some of the first microservices on top, uh, like widgets that are sort of iframes that can go on any website or app. So we have around 50 different food brands, retailers, and supermarkets that are Wow. Are using our technology directly in on their websites and apps to have this flexible experience on top. Okay, so you 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 mentioned microservices. You're running in in AWS, so I guess you're leveraging some Kubernetes and some containers on the back end uh, as well. You mentioned API um, integration, so I guess your your API is really key and critical to um, integrating into other technologies and consumers or businesses that, that you would like to tap into your app and vice versa. Um, you also have a, a data dashboard. Can, can you break down the data dashboard? You know, what's, what's on it and what type of information is that providing for um, someone who's actually utilizing Plant Jammer? Yeah, so um, when you're when you're a business uh, food company or someone who is intrigued and in, in inspiring your audience with recipes, um, you use either our API or our widgets uh, that are basically calling our API um, to create these novel recipe experiences. Um, we can talk about what exactly that means in a second, but essentially once you do that, you're inviting your audience in 
to have a lot of small actions on, okay, am I vegan? Do I want gluten-free? Do I want to take out the cilantro? What's a good substitute for lentils? You're making all these choices as an end user. And all those end user choices is telling you as a brand who's supplying this something about your customers that will help you uh, create business intelligence about, you know, what's the next food product to develop? What's the kind of, uh, you know, partners I should have of other food companies? What's the best sort of marketing approach based on what people like? Uh, you're learning a lot about your audience there. And that's what comes out in the dashboard. So the dashboard is basically full of what are the recipes that people pick? What are the ingredients that people take off? And what are the ingredients they take in? Um, what are the kind of filters they apply? So, you know, if people keep on taking Mediterranean filters so that they get Mediterranean ingredients and recipes, we're seeing that as well. So you really get sort of a whole flavor and nutrition fingerprint of your customers at a very granular level. And that's what the dashboard shows. So you, you must have a pretty deep bench of developers and programmers on the back end. Because uh, as, you're, as you're explaining the technology, I'm thinking, oh, wow, this is a, a really hefty database that's, you know, has all of the details, uh, the bits and pieces of, you know, food items and recipes, and it's storing a lot of, a lot of information on the back end. Just as far as a data protection plan or redundancy and resiliency, I'm sure you're probably running in multiple regions and zones. And just can you share any of that information, like the importance of making sure that you have resilience built into a platform? Yeah, I mean, the, the major thing that we do, because we, you're right, we have, uh, we have both overarching gastronomical data that we're working with chefs on and are having getting structures in from the data scientists to set up the structures. And then the, the, the actual food scientists are sitting there building the recipes, saying how umami is an ingredient and having this very granular gastronomical data. Then on top of that, we get the individualized data on top, which is, you know, the, the stuff where you're saying starting having a whole CMS system, basically, of customers and what they like and don't like. Uh, so, and that's sort of translated into something we call masks. So it's these vectors of ingredients or dishes with weights that that we're that I was getting us to understand these customers, and uh, and basically for resilience, what we're making sure to do is we both have uh, local servers with some of this data, and then we're keeping it on the cloud with AWS for uh, for available uh, sort of twenty four seven. So we always have this sort of fallback option uh, and make sure that we are we're having the data secure. Okay, awesome. And so I I also saw you you're looking for Python and Django back-end developers. So th this is a plug for all of you coders out there, back-end developers. If you're very proficient in Python and, and Django, please reach out to, to Michael. But you, you may have to live in Europe, right? <laughs> Actually, you don't. Uh, because what we learned in COVID is that remote work works. Uh, we, we, we build a lot of sort of uh, habits and, and ways of working that makes us you know, completely independent of physically, physical presence. So we have our rituals, we have our routines that are making sure that we can work and cooperate no matter where we are uh, and at what time zones we are. So actually, we are we're quite ready for that, uh, also to work with people who are outside of Europe. Okay. And, and since you are a, a part of the EU and in Europe, you, Copenhagen, right, if I'm not mistaken, th there's certain compliance and regulations that you have to comply with because you're, you're storing, I don't know if I would call it customer data, or not, but I guess you are. What's, I guess, one of the most challenging components with staying compliant to some of these these uh, regulations as you're continuing to innovate and um, also trying to grow um, the product? Yeah, the rules are very strict in Europe. Uh, this this GDPR rule set that that that, that 
that makes it quite restrictive what we can do. Um, so what we have done to respond to this is to make sure that all personal identifiers is actually not sitting on us, it's sitting with our clients. So actually, we are not the CMS system for others. Uh, rather, what we have is uh, IDs of users, so ID number 274. And then we know all this data about 274, but we don't really know who he is. And that's, we just hand over 274 to our client, who then holds the actual private, uh, private data. So that's always kept at the client side, uh, from our side. And that's sort of the structure of our stack, is to make sure that the, we don't become a bottleneck on, on security because if we need to get a lot of clients on board, they will always have questions about exactly this. So the smart solution is for us to get completely around the problem by not having any personal identifiers in our databases. So that's the way we get around it so that all the personal data is actually sitting with the client. They also feel happy about that, that we are, they don't have any risk of you know, uh, losing their, their client's data to, to third parties being sold on and so on. But it really is their data. You have any Salesforce um, API plugin capability? We, we, yeah, both Salesforce and HubSpot is what we, we tend to integrate with. Okay, HubSpot and Salesforce. Got it, got it. Which, which one is prevalent, more prevalent as far uh, as? Yeah. In our experience, it actually has been HubSpot uh, because we work with smaller food brands who tend to have smaller agile solutions. Uh, and sort of it, they're very, HubSpot is quite friendly at the sort of very early tier solutions, uh, getting it up and running. So for that reason, HubSpot is pretty active. Okay. And, and since, since you are working with uh, developers and programmers, so I, I guess you, you've learned a, a little bit more than you, than you have when you started out looking for a developer and how do you build a SaaS-based product. W what advice would you give to a Gumbo listener who is, let's say they, they want to start out in, in programming and coding, and I'm sure you've learned a thing or two about what's the hot language or what to do, what not to do. And maybe you've had a bad experience with choosing a developer that didn't live up to their expectations or whatever. But what, what advice would you give, let's say, a, an entry-level uh, programmer and developer out there right now? Yeah, I think, I think the first and foremost thing to realize is, uh, you know, you will... There's so much religion around what language to use. And, and I don't really adhere to any religion there. We've chosen a stack that we're happy about. But, but it's not that, you know, you go one pathway and suddenly you're, you're in the wrong place. <laughs> uh, any, any, any sort of uh, programming language can work. Uh, so I wouldn't be so infatuated with that aspect. Uh, if you learn one language, you'll learn another one as well. So what I would be actually, what I've realized is the biggest sort of mistake we've made in the past for junior developers is, basically jumping too fast into code. And this sounds a bit, bit, bit weird, but when you're building products, it's really important to first say, where do we need to build a big architecture and, and big infrastructure? And where do we need, where can we actually manage well with you know, importing and exporting CSVs into the right places and someone working in Excel first to really get the structures right before we start coding? So, so it's just super important to not you know, uh, program yourself into a corner by just trying it out but really thinking hard about architecture first and you know, mapping it out in, in graphs of sort of how you want to code this, mapping it out in Excel sheets or Google Docs or whatnot, so that you really know what you're building and have lined that with the people you're going to be working with before you start writing the first line of code. I think that's, that's the biggest lesson because we were probably a little bit fast sometimes, feeling like it's agile to start coding fast and see what happens, but it's not. Uh, what's really agile is to learn things before you code and then start going into it.
So that would be the big lesson. Like really think of architecture and have the map clearly in your mind before you start going in and, and hit the keyboard. Yeah, I think we all fall prey to, you know, wanting to just jump right in and move fast without doing that that strategy and planning and, you know, put it on a whiteboard and, you know, really take that time out to talk about all the pros and cons and, you know, which language are you going to use? What are the weaknesses? What are the some of the technical challenges or differences when it comes to scaling, right? Because you might start small, but then you may grow to a medium-sized company. Um, and then maybe you, you, you might want to move into the enterprise sector. So if you've built something that, like a database, right, you have to be, you have to know which database to choose, right? You have NoSQL, you have MongoDB, you have all these different types of um, databases, right? So you want to make sure you choose the right one. So I, I think that's, that's a, a pretty smart tip there. Uh, also, Michael, you, you use uh, artificial intelligence and uh, you have some gastronomic uh, algorithms that, that you have um, in play. Um, what are some of the learnings or best practices that, that you guys followed when building out your, um, your whole model? I think, I think what's important here is it's not that you just, you know, plaster AI on top of some problem, then you know, the solution magically appears, right? You've got to find a very specific domain where you believe this is where, you know, a neural network can solve something. Uh, and we found a very, very specific one. You know, um, in, in, in recipes, we're super blessed that there are, you know, open source recipes everywhere. Right? There's recipes all over the, the web, you know, millions and millions. And that's why it's so hard to find a good recipe because there's so much stuff out there, right? And it's just impossible to, to find you know, the right one uh, and sort of sort through it. Um, but, but that also means that we have so much data on uh, particularly on which ingredients tend to go together. And that was the, the, the area where we found that neural networks can work really well. So we built a huge database by, by scraping a lot of recipes. We didn't need the recipes, we just needed the ingredients. And once we have the ingredients, we basically have all these sets of ingredients that someone out there in the world thought went well together. And they're all a little vote for these ingredients going well together. And, and, and that's where we applied a, a neural network uh, approach of sort of saying, how can we map out which ingredients tend to go together in different recipes? And then we can start doing a lot of labeling on the different recipes, what kind of recipes they are, how highly rated they are, what size they're on, and so on, to map it out further. But, but already from just doing a neural network on ingredient matching based on all these recipes, we had a really good sort of stake at food pairing, which we could use across. And now we know that if someone is coming in saying, I have you know, potato and broccoli and soy sauce, what else? What's the next ingredient to put in here? We know it's chili sauce or, or uh, you know, it might be uh, uh, sesame seeds, right? So we're in the Asian region there already and we, the neural network knows that. And that's a very specific domain where we realized AI or particularly a neural network can, can do a really good job that we never would be able to do by uh, just just by, by doing human calculations uh, sort of uh, standard. And have you guys thought about maybe throwing in some intelligence for wine pairing? Absolutely. The, the, the problem there is, is uh, the, the, we, I don't see a clear data set where we can get the learnings in that we have, right? So it might be that Vivino, one of these wine platforms that have a lot of observations from users, they can start doing stuff like this. But you need that database that really creates a powerful learning algorithm. 
um, so you can do some supervised learning. But uh, so, so we have that in recipes for food. We have that in recipes for cocktails, uh, for smoothies, for like there's other spaces where you have this available. So that's probably the more natural space to go. So I'd go the cocktail route is, is one we're looking into. That's quite interesting. Um, less so on the wines because the wine is already fully fabricated by the moment, the moment you drink it. Got it. Got it. And you, so, so you also working with multiple grocery chains, you know, in Sweden and just maybe across Europe as well. Um, what, what is one of the, or what was one of the most challenging aspects of trying to get grocery, grocery stores, grocery chains to truly believe in whatever you're selling in the app and, and all of that? Like, what was the most challenging thing and what advice would you give to, once again, we'll say someone who's trying to start something from scratch and they really believe in it and they want to continue to push through. So, so first of all, we, we go to retailers and, and basically what we have to offer first and foremost is a recipe experience that focuses on fighting food waste. So they get a voice where they can actually make a difference with their custom group of, of fighting food waste, both in store and in home. Um, and that's a really st powerful story uh, to tell out there. So they both get that connection with their customers and they get to make an impact. And we make that very measurable, that impact as well. So they can actually report how much they're fighting food waste. So that story really works and we actually get them excited. So the first thing is to start with a why, which is we, what we're doing there, of really focusing on the impact you have and why this is important, not just for your business, but also for the kind of company you want to be. Now, the challenge that uh, we've been running into uh, the most, there's a technical challenge and then there's a organizational challenge. So the, the technical challenge that we have is quite simply that most retailers, their bread and butter is not digital. It's becoming more and more so, but it's not right now. So there are aspects of their sort of whole chain that are just not digitized very well, particularly uh, their product mapping. So they have SKUs, uh, individual units they're selling out in the, in the stores and, uh, and mapping that individual SKU to an actual ingredient that you would use in a recipe sounds super simple. You know, here's a, here's a ketchup, it's Heinz, so it's a ketchup. <laughs> but just that mapping that Heinz is actually a ketchup, it, it goes wrong quite okay. often. So sometimes if you just ask for them for a set of ingredients, they start coming with shampoo with melon flower, mel melon flavor, and they think it's melon. <laughs> uh, so, so just a very simple challenge of sort of mapping into ingredients. That's something we needed to build some some, some you know, machine learning algorithms for helping with so that they can plug and play, put in all the SKUs, and we actually know which are which ingredients they are. So that's the, the technical challenge we had to solve. It's okay. a result of them being less digitized. Um, now, the organizational challenge that we've been, been having is because, um, again, they're not too digitized at this point, they don't yet have this product mindset where you have a product team that runs independent decisions and runs fast to get to a very clearly defined user experience that they're then trying to solve for. That's not a mindset that you're used to so much in, in these bigger companies. So you, you tend to have a mindset more of saying, is there, a, is there a C level guy who has a great idea that he wants to share and have like this waterfall effect of what does this mean to, for a developer to develop because someone had an idea in the shower, that kind of idea. Um, and when you have this kind of process, it's super slow to come in with a new idea because you basically have to convince the, the C-level person and he has to convince seven other people before something gets done. So that makes things quite slow. 
so the big challenge is really and just to realize that if you're going to be working with companies that are less digitized, you'll have to start from the top and move downwards towards the, the, the people who are acting on a daily basis at this point. Or you have to find the companies that have product teams that really are digitized and can move fast in the mm, space. Okay. Yeah, but that's the, the big challenge in, in, in SaaS is when you're working with companies that are not too used to a product uh, sort of mindset, mm-hmm. uh, they will be moving slow. Okay, great. And ha- have you thought about or have you you and your team talked about ransomware and the what if, you know, if, if that happened, you know, what would you do and how would you continue to, you know, protect your systems and, and, and keep them secure? Because that that's a big topic nowadays is ransomware and, you know, your data getting encrypted and not only your data getting getting encrypted, but the bad actors also saying, yeah, we're going to put your data out in the public so they can actually see all of your customers and, you know, your code. What are some of the, the things that you're thinking about just to, to make sure that, that your, your, uh, your SaaS platform stays secure? Yeah, actually, we're, we're in a bit of a, f- a funny space here uh, because we're not holding private data and because our core sort of data engine is about a lot of disparate recipe databases that then talk together in a logic. And it's basically the logic that's the the sort of the, the connective tissues. Uh, so uh, so for that reason, that any any given database is actually not really valuable to anyone. It's the whole system that starts becoming powerful. So for that reason, we don't really have an issue with people getting the data by itself because it really is that the full system that's the value. Uh, and we do have a generally an open source mindset. You know, the API is open for people to work with and play with. And, 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 and obviously, we need to give them an API key. Uh, and, and there's all kinds of uh, token policies around that. But essentially, it's open. And that's the, the whole principle of what we do here. So that means that we're not as concerned about the data as such. We have it stored locally as well. So we have always can put it up again. And if someone else gets it, good for them. Uh, hope they create something beautiful with it. If you if you had an opportunity to let's say travel back in time to your sixteen year old self, what what advice would, would you would you tell sixteen year old Michael? <laughs> I think what I would oh, that's a great question. I would I would I would tell my sixteen year old Michael that Mike, don't worry, no one has a clue. <laughs> what that means is basically uh, we walk around, spend a lot of time uh, in our early years thinking that there are people who really uh, are experts in, in our every field. And, you know, we will have a really hard time solving any problem because there's always someone who's done it for 20 years more than me. Um, but what I realized much later than 16 was that actually if you put your brain into a problem and think hard about it, uh, you can make a difference in that field. And it's not that someone else with 20 years experience in the past will have a dramatically better solution you necessarily if you think hard about this and be creative around the problem because you have unique information in your brain. You've learned certain things and you're connecting things and no other brain will have been connecting. For that reason, you can, you can add value to any domain uh, by, by spending enough time on it. And we're not talking about years. We're talking about probably weeks or months. You can actually add value to domain, any domain. So it was probably a bit hard to say no one has a clue, but there's just no space where all stones have been turned and all problems have been solved. Uh, and no matter what domain you go into, you can add value. 
Well, I, I love it. And can you provide more details about Plant Jammer, uh, your website and, you know, downloading the app? Just any any details and information that you can provide so they can uh, really get access to and, and maybe check out the product. Absolutely. So so basically, there's, there's three ways of playing with our technology. So the first one is to go to plantjammer.com. Uh, and uh, there's a little uh, contact form in there where you can add, answer a few questions and then you can get your own little widget of, of recipes to play with. Uh, and you can put it on your own website for free. Uh, you will only pay if you want to have the data back on what do people do with my recipes. So that's the first one. Second one is uh, is to actually go to the same site, plantgemma.com, uh, and there's an individualization survey where you will answer a few questions in a type form about the flavors you like, the nutrition that is most important to you, and then I will get around back to you uh, with an actual individualized cooking assistant based on our technology, where that will be fully adhered to your your you know nutritional preferences and taste preferences. So that's the second one. And the third one is to go to the App Store, whether it's uh, Google or uh, or Apple, and type in Plant Jammer, and you'll get the Plant Jammer app. Well, you'll see another sort of version of what you can do with the API. And, and Michael, I just thought of something. What what if you could plug in to your technology and say, you know, I have high cholesterol and the product creates some recipes based upon and filtered out all the bad stuff that causes high cholesterol or high blood pressure or whatever disease, right, to help maximize uh, your your diet. Is, is that something you thought about or is that something you can do now? We can do it now. Uh, I'm so happy you say this. Ooh. This is exactly uh, what we actually created the technology for because what happens is the moment that we learn, let's say that you have high cholesterol, we are adding a trained mask on ingredients which are proposing certain ingredients, blacklisting certain ingredients and, and prioritizing others. Mm-hmm. And a mask to dish types as well, so the kind of recipes you'd be suggested. Mm. So that way, both the recipes and the particular adaptations of the recipes for you will be completely personalized to your health goals. Uh, so, so that's completely possible. So that's the individualization survey that you can find on plantgemma.com if you go in there. Okay. Uh, we can actually answer these questions. You'll get back uh, an experience uh, for for your particular health goals. And is it how long is the, is the product free? For like an individual for for this individualized form uh, you you pay uh, 10 euros so uh, i guess that's like 13 dollars and you get it for a lifetime the product is free if you're just using the basic service right exactly it's the moment that you individualize uh so you have something specifically that you you're paying something for that upfront cost okay got it all right i i understand it I, i've downloaded it as i as i mentioned earlier i am going to go through with the getting started portion of it set it up and i may even pay for the the uh the individualized report to to do that as well because it's something that i'm taking really serious now is my health you, you have to take care of yourself multiple ways and eating smart is i think probably the the number one thing that you can do in order to keep yourself healthy so michael i i really appreciate you uh being on the podcast i've learned a lot and i hope uh, our listeners have also learned a lot as well uh, any any closing closing words for for the gumbo listeners? No, I just thank you so much for having me here. I think it's 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 it's, it's super important to put emphasis on on food uh, because it is this uh, magical space where you can have self realization of learning a tool. Like it's like going to the tool shed to go to the kitchen. You really learn to learn things about yourself and your flavor. It's almost like meditation when you taste. If you really taste in the food, you're getting present right here, right now which is important because we spend all of our lives looking into a screen and thinking conceptually, but 
food is one of those areas where we get into our body and use our senses. So that's important for mental health. And that is obviously the physical health and, and the planetary health aspect as well as being touched by food. So thank you for putting attention to food uh, and, and what it can do to both our planet and, and ourselves. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. All right. Thanks, Michael. Thank you for listening to Data Protection Gumbo. Please follow us on Twitter at DPG Podcast and join our Backup and Recovery Professionals LinkedIn group. Just search Backup and Recovery Professionals on LinkedIn and you will find the group. And until next time, Gumbo listeners, have a fantastic week.